Michael Hausenbloss is a developer and cloud advocate with Mesosphere, and he joins us to talk about cluster computing and how to manage the data center as an operating system. Michael, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff, and I'm looking forward to uh, yeah discuss that exciting topic with you. Awesome. So you've been observing this space for much longer than I have. Could you start by giving us some historical context about cluster computing and how we got to where we are now? Right, right, right. So, you know, depending on how, how uh, you know, far we look back in history, but obviously there have been um, sorts of clusters like, you know, HPC and, and stuff for, for decades around. Um, but really seriously, I would say the last 15 to 20 years, um, companies like Google being, being, you know, the, the trailblazing examples for, for applying these, uh, large scale compute and also storage efforts to uh, commodity hardware effectively, right? Google back then around 2000, they couldn't afford a, a big, uh, big box, right? So they looked into how can we, get the same out of of uh, you know essentially a network of commodity machines and um by by doing that they had to acknowledge the fact that a lot of the stuff that you would typically do by you know getting better hardware in there and, and more reliable hardware they, they essentially had to do in the software uh, layer um, no matter if you did it in the operating system layer or application layer yeah, how much of this story is about Google releasing papers and the world following suit and implementing those ideas? To be honest, I would say at least 60 to 70%. No matter where you look, you know, Hadoop, um, now uh, pretty much everything around containers and so on. Wherever you look, you you see... Uh, either so-called white papers, which essentially are just, you know, research papers. Uh, and then people in the open source try to, based on what they read in, in these white papers, to, to you know, recreate that in, in the open source. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, way over over 50% of the things we see nowadays uh, in the open source world are directly or indirectly inspired by what Google has been doing in the last decade. Do you think that big company architectures like Google are generally a leading indicator of where smaller company architectures are going? I think the uh, lessons learned uh, can be very, very beneficial. Obviously, the, the one you know factor or aspect that that open source. Uh, not not software, but open source really is eating the world. Uh, that that's that's huge, right? And and where do these open source projects get their their ideas, their inspiration, their their blueprints or whatever from? Well, from companies such as Google. It's it's not Google alone. There are like other companies that also you know like uh, LinkedIn, for example, with Kafka and so on and so forth. Um, either generally developed systems or in the case of Mesos, it would be Twitter who made uh, that open source project um, essentially mainstream and, and usable for, for folks. How are the distributed systems needs of different companies changing? So we have witnessed, I believe, starting in around, well, 2000 again, um, this, this NoSQL movement, the kind of liberation of the, the, you know, the, the straitjacket of the relational database and database vendors. Um, and, and then the, the, you know, through, through Hadoop, uh, a, a whole slew of, of, um, you know, distributed 
engines essentially be it spark be it, uh, you know query engines like like drill or impala or presto db from facebook um and now we have this variety, this zoo of, uh, and you know, as, as you might know, Zookeeper being one of of these uh, elements <laughs> there. Uh, that's 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 not a coincidence, right? The Yahoo guys uh, exactly named it for that because it is a it is a, a zoo, right? A zoo of things. Um, so we are a bit of out of our comfort zone compared to you know around 1995 or, or or 2000. All you needed to know in terms of storage was essentially MySQL, right? That's it. And nowadays you need to, you know, are you in the cloud or on premises? Do you <laughs> do you go for, you know, relational databases, some NoSQL or whatnot, time series databases, and so on and so forth. And in each of the categories, you have a sheer endless variety of of you know things you can choose from. So this diversity is that's great. That's uh, also if you look at, at you know the gene pool and so on, right? Diversity is always great. But it is challenge for very challenging for for practitioners to just just to to get an, an idea of what is actually the right thing for for my use case for my application. Now that we've developed uh, developed a motivation for this ecosystem, hmm. what is Apache Mesos and how does it fit in? Right. So uh, a while ago, uh, around two thousand nine, I believe um, Ben Hindman, he's uh, the the VP in, in uh, the vice president for the Apache Mesos pro- project in uh, in the Apache Software Foundation. Back then, he was a PhD student at Berkeley, and um, and he uh, looked with with a couple of others into that um, idea of of creating a new kind of um, resource manager. So imagine you have a, a, a cluster of machines, nodes, and um, you want to be able to create new frameworks, new things uh, that could be, you know, batch oriented, that could be low latency, whatever, uh, very quickly. Uh, wouldn't it be great if you would have a lower level abstraction that just makes the this cluster of machines, this network of machines look like one big box? I always jokingly say that Mesos is essentially mainframes done right. Um, and that, but that, I mean, effectively, you know, just as with a mainframe that, that looks and feels like one big machine, that's exactly what Mesos does for you. It makes one cluster of machines that, you know, our individual machines that are communicating through a local network look like one big box with terabytes of RAM and so and so many CPU shares and so on and so forth. And based on that, this is the, the core building block, a bit like the Linux kernel to, you know, Ubuntu or, or CentOS or whatever. Then you have a lot of things out there, uh, so-called frameworks. For example, for long-running jobs, you would use Marathon uh, or Kubernetes for... Um, uh, things like you know cron chops, uh, cron chop like batch chops. You would use Chronos. You would have big data frameworks like Spark and Elasticsearch, Cassandra, and so on and so forth. Um, but the the core is really Mesos that that abstracts all the resources in the cluster away. So Mesos provides this fine grained resource sharing and isolation. <laughs> if a developer if a developer wanted to get this from a data center without Mesos, prior to the Mesos world, what mm-hmm. would that developer have to do? So you as a developer would then be um, challenged by the fact that you have to deal with, let's say, you have a 
data center, which is a very you know fancy way of saying a cluster of machines. Uh, and you would need to to treat all these machines as individuals, right? So you would probably have some way of SSHing into the machines and launching stuff there. You would need to uh, take into account that these individual machines, you know, they they have they contribute to to your application with their local RAM and their local hard disk drives and so on and so forth. But you would need to write a kind of coordination layer that would say, um, I have or I need, let's say, one gig of RAM, so I need to find a machine where there is one gig of RAM available to launch that task, for example, right? So you would do you you would end up doing what Mesos does in a generic and reusable uh, way uh, per application, and that is obviously you know a uh, and that's the old IT trick, right? You always have one level of of interaction, and and <laughs> with that you solve everything, right? Right. So what are the types of operational problems that Mesos alleviates? I mean, you you kind of alluded to it in the sense of uh, alleviating this need to to write a coordination layer. Um, but in, in practice, like what are the, um, you know, you think of, you know, ops guys pre and post Mesos, at least, um, you know, what are the, what are the problems that Mesos alleviates? Right, right. So again, I, I will point out that no one out there is using Mesos on its own. It's equally, you know, senseless to say uh, someone is using the Linux kernel. <laughs> that, that doesn't make sense, right? You, you need something around that. Unless you're able to, to do the syscalls and whatnot, you're not using the kernel as such. Uh, and in the same way, without the frameworks, Mesos wouldn't do any good, right? Mesos wouldn't be useful at all. Uh, so Mesos is, is essentially per design saying, Mesos, the, the, the Mesos you know, distributed operating system kernel does not try to schedule any kind of, of workloads, but it just says I'm, you know, managing the resources and offering these resources to the so-called frameworks. And the frameworks then really implement the scheduling depending on what kind of workload they have. As I said, Marathon, for example, for long running, Chronos for badge, and so on and so forth. And there the actual scheduling decisions are taking place. And this two-level, at least in, in theory, uh, it would be interesting to have a study on that, uh, makes it enables people to, to um, write these, these frameworks much, much faster rather than they would, you know, comparable without Mesos have to, to write it from scratch. One uh, kind of, uh, yeah, um, anecdotal evidence we have from actually from our CEO who, who wrote Kronos and he essentially said, like, hey, um, I didn't have to write any kind of networking stuff at all. I was just, you know, uh, focusing on the on the functionality and the UI and so on. And everything in terms of uh, of the networking and, and you know, dispatching the, the tasks and so on and so forth, everything was taken care of by Mesos. So as you've mentioned, the scheduler in Apache Mesos called mm -hmm. Marathon, this is uh, probably the most important part of it to, to focus on. Um, Mesos provides a two-level scheduling mechanism that yeah. decides how many resources to offer the different frameworks, and then yeah. those frameworks can choose which resources to accept. Exactly. Can you can you give an example of how this might work in practice on on a Mesos cluster with several different frameworks running? Right, right, right. So obviously, um, so. Again, why is that different? That's exactly upside down to what you would normally expect, right? Normally, you would expect someone demands something, says, I need these resources, and then gets these resources allocated. And in, in the Mesos world, it's really upside down. So the, the Mesos... Would you call that, that, that way that you just mentioned, would you call that a fair scheduler? 
It is uh, the the core of the Mesos. Um, uh, yeah, of Mesos is really it's called DRF, uh, and and this um, yeah uh, core algorithm uh, essentially guarantees fairness across different resources, which is quite unique. So resources being things like you know TPU, RAM, and so on and so forth. So it depends on the, the type of workload, but the, the DRF um, algorithm. Um, domain uh, um, a dominant resource uh, fairness algorithm um, guarantees this this uh, this fairness across different uh, types of resources across different workloads. So coming back to to Mesos and Marathon and then potentially other frameworks, wh what happens essentially is it's always triggered by a user, right? So if if I don't do anything. Uh, if I don't say, hey, launch this Nginx web server, then obviously nothing will happen, right? Mesos will, let's say we have three different frameworks, Marathon, Kronos, and Spark. And, and you know, Mesos will offer the, the cluster resources, as I said, CPU, RAM, uh, port ranges, disk, and so on, to the frameworks, but nothing will happen because no one launched a chopper or anything. Now, let's say I say to Marathon, hey, um, launch this Nginx web server, And I specify I need at least 500 megs of RAM and and you know these ports and and uh, let's say half CPU share or whatever. And that is the input. That is the trigger for Marathon to start looking and accepting resources as they are offered by the Apache Mesos kernel. And um, now let's say you. Uh, Jeff, you are uh, issuing at the same time a, a Spark chop, right? A, a Spark batch chop, um, and also specify certain you know requirements in terms of resources. Um, then Mesos will you know also after it has offered, for example, first uh, my Marathon uh, framework, the resource it will offer you uh, resources, and um, and we are all happy. We can all you know progress. We can all execute, uh, depending also on. On decision of the administrator, because, for example, someone might decide, well, you know, Jeff is a great guy, but you know, he's only doing the the analytic stuff, and so he can he can you know work with some Slack resources. But Michael is running the the nginx, and he really needs a lot of resources. So there might be some roles and some some static partitioning that I, you know, in terms of quality of service and so on and so forth, that I might decide that certain frameworks are prioritized or or should get more or whatever. Uh, but other than that, uh, that's how it works. That's exactly how resources are offered. So we've done some shows that have touched on microservices in <laughs> in this show. Um, <clears throat> is is Mesos useful for doing service discovery and uh, like orchestrating these different microservices? So the the answer is yes and no because Mesos itself is so low level in the abstraction that Mesos itself doesn't do anything in terms of you know, <laughs> discovery or whatever. But it does provide, uh, for example, if you think about you have a um, let's say an orchestration container orchestration tool such as, as Kubernetes or, or Marathon or whatever you have or, or HashiCorp Nomad or, or Docker Swarm. Uh, at the end of the day, all of them, what, what, what they do is, what all of them have in common is, they decide, okay, I'm going to launch this container on node one, two, three, four, right? So you as an, 
DevOps or administrator, you don't know and that you don't care and you don't have to care. That's the beauty of it, where this container is launched. But then you have a problem because if you want to connect to that container, let's say again, uh, Nginx, for example, web server, that do, you don't know to which node to connect to which IP. So you need the service discovery, right? Uh, who knows where, where that has been scheduled, where the container has been scheduled? Well, the scheduler. So Mesos provides this original, this mapping of uh, container IP and port potentially, depending on what you're using there, um, different uh, options available, and and uh, the container itself. So on which node does a certain container, which node IP port uh, is a certain container available. And that is then used, uh, for example, Mesos DNS, which is a you know DNS-based uh, service discovery. There are plenty of others, console and um, etcd-based, zookeeper-based, and many, many others. And in fact, I'm, I'm you know, currently writing on a book, or which is currently in production at O'Reilly, uh, around um, Docker networking and service discovery will will be uh, published in January. And oh. so there, uh, there, it's a free book, so everyone can you know download it for free and, and uh, talk about these things in greater detail there. Why did you decide to write that book? So the editor I met there, Brian and myself, we discussed it at, at Strata in, in New York and, and somehow figured that um, this area is kind of like not that uh, great, greatly covered yet. It's it's a, a rather new and, and fastly evolving, to be honest, uh, field. So it makes sense to have one of these, you know, it's it's a short book. It's like 60 pages or whatever. Um, it's, it would it makes sense to cover that topic, uh, even in this, this rapid change environment. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's what we Interesting. did. So now, I mean, this seems like a good a good segue into talking about Kubernetes. Um, now that we have an idea of why Mesos is so powerful, um, so Kubernetes is an open source container cluster manager. Uh, what is the history of Kubernetes? So it's essentially the story of of uh, how Google in the last you know, 10, 12, 13, whatever years uh, learned and lessons learned from from what Google did there, uh, launching nowadays reportedly some 2 billion containers per week. Um, and yeah, they, they had uh, originally the the, uh, the Borg uh, cluster manager and, and a couple of years ago there, there was uh, another uh, approach with, with Omega. Um, and at some point in time, they decided to, you know, open source or, or based on their knowledge and, and their lessons learned with, with uh, mainly with Borg, uh, to open source that, uh, a complete rewrite in Go um, from scratch. And uh, Kubernetes is a highly successful open source community project with, you know, many, many contributors, uh, you know, amongst others, ourselves, uh, Mesosphere, we're building Kubernetes on, on Mesos. Uh, and and you know it's it's really fascinating to see you know what what uptake and and adoption and and love uh, Kubernetes uh, enjoys out there. And it's in general, if you if you're you know all in regarding containers, you you have your CI/CD pipeline set up for pumping out you know Docker images or whatever. Then then you know you should go for Kubernetes. No no doubt about that, right? It's 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 very very straightforward. Um, if you if you're not ready yet, if you want to you know you have some "Quote unquote legacy applications, uh, you don't want to put in a container or whatever. Then, um, then, then Kubernetes is unfortunately currently not not an option. I don't think that this will change. It is, I think, per design a container, you know, orchestration management, whatever uh, system. What were the big lessons learned that Google took away from its work on Borg? 
Right. So there are a couple. There, there's a, a really good paper uh, just came out this year. Uh, funnily enough, uh, because the the um, <laughs> predecessor Omega, the, this paper already came out in 2012, so kind of upside down again. Um, but um, the the things they mentioned there in this paper um, are things like um, the pod as a unit rather than a single container, so that things that belong together and should you know live and die together are scheduled together on, on, a, on a certain note. Um, things that are I think already now being backported to Borg um, are how to organize things with with labels rather than having as strict and and rigid you know hierarchy of things um, different use cases or different organizations or whatever might view things in different lights. So having labels is very simple because everyone can, you know, apply his or her labels and, and can query uh, things like pods or our replication controllers, services, and so on. So all these abstractions that Kubernetes offers uh, from their point of view, and everyone is happy. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the idea of, of a replication controller that essentially looks at um, something that, that you, you tell, I want to have three copies of this uh, web server, and the replication controller um, takes that this this order and and you know compares it with the real world, and then uh, makes sure that this order or or the desired state, uh, as they say in the documentation, is always the same as as, as what it experiences in the cluster. Um, you can do things like you know rolling upgrades, and you can do things like online debugging. I've recently blogged about that, uh, which is really cool that you can you know essentially just take one of these pods out of a replication controller, and the replication controller will say, oh, oops, uh, there is one pod missing, and launches another one, right? And and you keep keep uh, or you can then debug this this container online. And there are many many things uh, around that uh, details, but these are some of the the lessons learned and and uh, this. Uh, relative uh like on the one hand you have very powerful um uh, concepts like or abstractions like services that kind of give you a stable interface for the you know pods that come and go uh, on the other hand uh, you have you know a very fine-grained control over many many things be it, you know quotas and and uh, volumes and so on and so forth so we should zoom out a little bit for People who are just loosely familiar with containers and don't really understand how they right. work, you know, a container is uh, a, a, a subset of a file system, or what? What is it exactly? Can you explain to our listeners how how a container works? Right, right. So I would say, um, think of a VM, think of a virtual machine, then forget everything you know about it, and then we can start talking. Um, so don't think of a VM. It is not a VM. It is really just a application level dependency management tool that's a bit of a mouthful what, what i mean by that like if you're familiar with with python um then you might uh, know uh, virtual env so you essentially can guarantee that for your application the exact you know libraries and whatnot what you need is there throughout the entire life cycle from your machine over to Q, qa to production and so on so it's really from the developer perspective something where this old you know it used it used to work on my machine it's so unfortunately it doesn't work <laughs> on the production server that goes away right you can say this is exactly what i need this is the web server here are the libraries the dependencies and whatnot and you freeze that in time that's the image right and then you can ship it then you can you know run it wherever you want and this is the big thing it's really really not a vm yes there are things that look familiar 
like isolation, um, the the um, things like that you can look at. You know, you can um, say in this this container is supposed to um, you know maximum uh, consume this bandwidth or RAM or whatever, and if it's if it go, goes above that, then kill it. Um, but I would argue that it's from like how, how people are supposed to use containers. That's totally different to to VMs. They're really lightweight. Uh, I I alone launch you know hundreds and thousands of containers per week. Uh, not Google, and but I, I still do it because it's you know it it it's just a, really like a a process group on steroids, right? It's it's really just a, a very nice way for developers, DevOps, uh, to define their their application environment and to make sure that this looks the same, looks and feels the same throughout the entire lifecycle. Yeah, and so as you mentioned before, one of the things that the Borg paper touched on was this idea of pods, and this got carried over mm-hmm. into Kubernetes. So, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned the importance of uh, this resource co-location mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. a pod. Uh, what is the purpose of a pod? Like, why is that co-location uh, so useful? Right, right, right. Um, so I would argue that very, very often... If you look at, uh, no matter if you look at toy examples or what people are testing or, or you know, production insights, we, we have less uh, concrete examples available. But whatever you can find in terms of what people share, uh, you will not find that many pods that really have many, many different, uh, like two or three or four different containers. But you very often have this... Um, Setup and and we recently did a demo a time series demo that that exa- exactly uses that uh, pattern that you have one container that is about uh, for example a web server that displays something uh, that you know provides a user interface and then you have another container that pulls some data from somewhere in our case it was an S three bucket right mm-hmm. and the beauty there is that you can um, change right you can say oh I'm, i don't want to use nginx anymore i want to use something very new let's say apache web server or the other way around right and then you know you can do the same thing to the other pod you can say initially i wrote this you know s3 uh, bucket pull uh, container uh, in perl and now i'm going to rewrite it in i don't know go um, and nothing changes right because uh, the the interface is the same. They probably will share the data through a local volume, and and, and in within a pod, all the containers they see each other on local host. They share the data and the volume and so on. So they they are you know very very tightly coupled. Um, so you can evolve these things independently. You can use this, for example, this pulling something from S3 in different contexts. You can use it you know once for your web server and once for some backup mechanism and so on and so forth. Um, so you have this reusability, but because they are scheduled together, you have the, the guarantee of data locality because it would it simply wouldn't make sense to have the one container on one node and the other container on the other node, and then how do you get the data from A to B? So you know you have this this sweet spot, or you can decide uh, where the sweet spot is between reusability and and data locality and, and coupling. And so when we were talking about Mesos, and we talked about the the scheduler of Mesos, Marathon. Right. Marathon looks at resources uh, being allocated. When when Mesos, if Mesos is interfacing with Kubernetes, mm-hmm. is is the idea of resources? Does that uh, get translated to pods or where? Like, wh- what is the le- where is where is the interface between Mesos right. and Kubernetes? 
Right, right, right. So from like from a, a like if I use Kubernetes through Mesos or the DCOS our product, um, I don't see a difference, right? It's it, it looks and feels the same. Uh, we might not be there yet in terms of covering the the entire 1.1 API, but uh, you know it, it doesn't. Uh, they, they, it's the same kind of interaction. The thing is, from Kubernetes' point of view, it's a bit like I always com- compared with the matrix. Like Kubernetes lives in, in a matrix there, the matrix being <laughs> Mesos, right? It doesn't really know that it's actually you know running under the control of of Mesos. Um, so the trick there is really to provide um, to translate this you know, pull model, if you wish, from, from Kubernetes, where a pod says, hey, I'm here and I want to I have these resources and, and you know, run, to uh, the, the, at the end of the day, there is a component there in Kubernetes on Mesos that, you know, because it's just a framework, really, from Mesos perspective, that needs to wait and hope that the right resources fly by that it can accept them, right? But uh, as I said, it's it's really um, from the end user perspective uh, equal. From the administrator perspective, it's obviously different because you, you know Kubernetes is not alone there. It's it's just from Mesos perspective, just one framework. You might have others, um, and then it depends on uh, how are they using certain systems like. Uh, well, Sukiper is not a problem with Kubernetes because Kubernetes is using etcd to uh, maintain the the state of the cluster throughout. Uh, you know, uh, like what what pods are running and 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 so on and, so on, and mappings and so on. Um, but you you can imagine uh, that there are certain services. Let's say I don't know Marathon and Storm, for example, both use Sukiper. Um, and if you don't decide to, for example, having a separate Sukiper instance or Sukiper cluster really for Marathon and Storm, then it might be that you know if you have a busy Storm topology that that might somehow influence your uh, <laughs> capability of launching new applications in Marathon, right? So these are best practices that come out of of using this stuff in in you know production systems, production environments that where you say mm, yeah maybe maybe it's better to have like one system Zookeeper right where only Mesos and 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 Marathon use that and one other for for all the frameworks or per framework that uses Zookeeper or whatever. But th- th- that's the kind of problem that you then see, which you don't have if you have like standalone vanilla Kubernetes, right? You gave a talk at the London Mesos user group, um, and it was called, Can I Have Mesos and Kubernetes? What were you trying to convey in that talk? Right, right, right. So the question there really was... Um, like, is it possible? Does it make sense? And and I tr- tried to make the point that there are cases um, where you really want to have it uh, if, and that's that that's the if, uh, if you are running Mesos, right? So it doesn't really make sense to say, hey, you know, if someone says, hey, I want to use Kubernetes uh, to to go for Kubernetes on Mesos, right? That that wouldn't make sense. But if you're running Mesos, anyways then you also have the option with Kubernetes on Mesos to run, you know, to have Kubernetes applications, right? And, and it, that was the, the bottom line. And I, you know, gave a demo, showed something there. And and mm. don't forget, the, the problem there is that if you have an application, a legacy application or whatever, that you do not yet want to put into a container to build Docker images or a rocket, for example, uh, then then you cannot use Kubernetes, right? So you might start with, uh, you know, Marathon or whatever, 
uh, and have, and but you do want to have the option to to benefit from the power and flexibility of communities. Mm. Do so do you see the idea. majority of Mesos users leveraging containers in some form or fashion? So the truth is, everyone is using containers because there is no other option. Even if you're not using Docker containers, and there's the big confusion that you know, if you say uh, containers, right. That's what I 99, 99% of the people out there, or 90%, will probably think, ah, he means Docker, yeah. which is not the case, right? Like containers as such, they have been around for more than 10 years. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, they have been renamed to C groups, and it was effectively a bunch of, of Googlers who who contributed all of that. Uh, so a fancy, fancy way of, of describing it because it's just really the combination of namespaces, like, you know, username spaces and file and, and process namespace and network namespace and C groups that make up um, make up a container. And, and Docker is just one very convenient UX around that, uh, including the, you know, the, the, the client and the, the registry and so on and so forth. Uh, but Mesos, Mesos, in any case, even if you just say do, you know, execute... Uh, while true, um, do uh, echo hello and then sleep 0.1 and done, right? Even if you, do, if you just execute this very simple shell script, then uh, Mesos will wrap that in, in a container. So there will be, you know, C groups and there will be, uh, depending on, on what you define there, uh, you know, namespaces set up and so on and so forth. So even if you're not using Docker, there will be a containerization, automatic containerization done by, by Mesos. But it's it's transparent. You don't notice. You just say, you know, here, that's the, you know, Java application or the Ruby script or the whatever you want to want to execute. Uh, anything that you can execute locally on, you know, a Linux shell, you can uh, you can execute in, in Mesos and, and Marathon. And so it's happening anyways. It's just a matter of if you have to put an effort into it and building actually these Docker images or not. So, uh, you know, as you've said, we, we've had Linux container technology for something like eight years or 10 years or whatever. But, um, you know, more recently, Docker came around and made things more usable. Um, could, 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 could Kubernetes have reached the type of adoption that it has without Docker? Or could was Kubernetes even feasible without Docker? I personally think that either someone at Google was very, very closely paying attention to it, or it was a huge coincidence. I don't know what, but it's clear to me that without the, the you know, popularity and, 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 you know, all the buzz that, that Docker generated, Kubernetes would probably have had a harder time. So it, it certainly benefits from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, I see... You know, Kubernetes is not Docker alone. You can do Rocket. You can, you know, run very soon, uh, hopefully, with 1.2 of, of Kubernetes, the um, the OCI, the Open Container Initiative, uh, runs his back and so on and so forth. So I would say, I would argue that now, like, uh, you know, thanks to, to Docker, this container um, field has been made mainstream and now Docker and, and uh, you know, they are still, uh, you know, probably the, the one number one thing used by, by, you know, the majority of people out there. But Kubernetes is certainly more than 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 uh, just just Docker images and Docker containers. Hmm. So in that talk where you were talking about Mesos and Kubernetes, 
There, there's an interesting slide that is titled, Let's Talk About Workloads. And it shows yep. this gradient from left to right, where it, it shows batch and streaming and platform as a service. Platform as a service is on the far right and batch is on the far left. Streaming is in between. Can you describe that gradient and where different technologies fall along it? And what, what was the point you were trying to make with that slide? Right. So first and foremost, I need to make one thing clear. I lifted that. I stole that slide from my my good old friend, Tim, Timothy Sinclair from, from Red Hat. Yes, um, and the attribution is in that slide. Yes. It's just, you know, I, I didn't make up this wonderful uh, slide. But it, it very much resonates with me and, and what I've seen. So in a real-world setup, in any kind of serious, bigger application out there, you will find these different workloads, right? You might have some batch, some, I don't know, reports that need to be created every Monday morning, uh, whatever. You might have some sort of stream, more or less stream processing, and you have some, some kind of PS level things. And the question there is always, will you need different base execution environments. I, I now put it in a very generic way to uh, drive all these workloads, to run all these workloads or not. And the idea behind Mesos somehow is uh, that, uh, you know, it is the, the base, it, it can function as the basis for all of that. And then depending on what you're looking at, like a batch would be like covered by Kronos and, and you know, we have a couple of, of things like Spark and, and so on that would cover uh, stream processing, for example, and then you would, ha would have Marathon and Kubernetes for the PES part. But in all honesty, um, as long as you're cool with the containerized uh, part, uh, Kubernetes is also covering quite, it's a, Kubernetes, it, it's a bit unfair to put Kubernetes like only for the PES stuff there, the, the right-hand side, the red side. Uh, but it's really, you know, Kubernetes also allows you to to run uh, perfectly well, you know, databases and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that was the basic uh, underlying idea of, of this, this um, you know, spectrum of workloads. And there's another slide where you say that Kubernetes allows for 100% containerized work, workloads and mm -hmm. Mesos allows for containerized and non-containerized workloads. But yeah. using Mesos and Kubernetes together, a user can have hybrid workloads. Can you talk about right. these different workload use cases? Right, right. So it's maybe a bit technically not correct to say non-containerized because as I mentioned earlier on, even if you if you you know just launch a whatever Python or, or whatever, <laughs> right. Mesos will wrap that in a or, or will you know containerize it for you. What I meant by that is if you are using Kubernetes, then you need to commit to and upfront be aware of that you are gonna you will be doing nowadays probably two hundred percent Docker images, right? You will need to uh, make sure that you have uh, policies around that. Maybe you you know decide on a couple of base images and how do people derive you know from these base images their own application images, uh, with what kind of registry, how are these images distributed to the nodes in the cluster, and so on and so forth, right? Whereas with with Mesos and Marathon, uh, you don't have to do that, right? You can simply say, hey, do this groundwork or whatever for me. Um, and you can combine these two things, right? You might, and actually this, this time series demo we did there uh, pretty much shows that, demonstrates that very nicely, uh, you know, 
where to use what in, in what way and I might might just include uh, a pointer to that it's it's up on github and there's also a blog post uh, so people can actually you know try out things uh, for for you know in, in their own time to see uh, how things work but that, that's what i meant with you know containerized and non-containerized whereas as i said again non-containerized is a bit uh, you know misleading here because under the hood it will be containerized it's just that the effort is not on your end or on your side does Kubernetes provide any cluster-wide services that Mesos can take advantage of? So the the answer to the first part is absolutely yes. There are a number of things uh, like hipster from for monitoring and you know uh, volumes, persistent disks, and so on and so forth that are in general uh, available throughout. It then depends a bit on on the environment. Like if you're going to, for example, Google Container Engine. Um, which is funnily enough called GKE because the C was already, you know, used for Google um, Compute <laughs> Engine. Um, then you have, you know, wonderful support. You have everything integrated, wonderful. You just say, you know, here this GCE um, per- persistent disk or whatever, and wow, you got your, you got your, you know, volume there, and and you know, you just say load balancer, and you have a wonderful load balancer, and you know, hipster comes for free, so you've got everything. If you're doing a bare metal Kubernetes, you know, uh, deployment on your own in your own cluster, then guess what? You need to, <laughs> you need to do that yourself, right? You need to uh, come up with a load balancer solution, come up with a monitoring solution. Well, you can, you probably will use Hipster, but, you know, all these things, you're like, well, what about these persistent disks? You might need an SFLS somewhere there and need to build these persistent disks on your own. So it depends on the environment. But in general, yes, uh, Kubernetes comes with a number of cross-cluster functionality features, uh, but then it depends a bit on on the environment, how they are um, actually implemented and, and, you know, instantiated. Um, And does it, so the second part was, does it, is it something that can be used from Mesos? Yes and no. It, it, it again depends. Like things like like hipster, that's great, right? You you want to monitor all your containers and, and how they are how they're doing and the utilization and so on. That's certainly there. Um, load balancers being another example. Other things might be um, you know a bit specific to to Kubernetes. I'm, I'm maybe pulling things out, out of the thin air, but for example, the the idea of a pod does not really exist outside of Kubernetes, right? So anything that that deals with a pod, does, it's, it's not really reusable in, in another context within Mesos. So, so when we talk about uh, Mesos and Kubernetes, there's there's another couple uh, things you know I've heard in this space: um, Docker Swarm and uh, Amazon ECS, and mm-hmm. I think there's probably some other technologies. Um, how how do these how do these compare? Are these uh, like mutually exclusive technologies or, or which ones are the mutually exclusive technologies? Maybe you could help me um, right, right. sort out which ones. So ECS, the um, Elastic Container Service, I believe it is called. And if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure that I, I get a friendly reminder from someone from AWS. <laughs> I think that's really right. Very much after that you get their stuff right. Um that's it's it's really a cool system and i would argue if you are you know all in regarding aws then you know consider using it mm-hmm. it's really just what i don't like about it it's obviously not open source aws doesn't do a lot of open source um and it's not very portable so if you decide to do your stuff with an ecs then you're effectively locked in 
for some people that's not a problem because they're anyways you know all in uh okay but if you want to have this option to you know you might want to do some hybrid stuff you might want to have something a bit on your own data center and the other part in the, in the cloud or you might to you know swap or or change from one cloud to the other because of whatever reasons uh then then ecs you know that that's the challenge there right it's not it's not based on, on open standards on an open source mm. software um so you're you're experiencing a kind of lock-in but overall it's a it's a it's a very you know great awesome nice uh, uh, system that that certainly uh, especially if you are all in aws uh, certainly certainly is, is a great way to go uh, docker swarm is early days um it's not what i would consider a full scheduler yet because it doesn't really uh take care of the entire life cycle it, lo it allows you to launch the, the containers but it doesn't keep them alive which to me at least is quite kind of essential thing for a scheduler that uh, you know it will restart uh, the, the pods or the containers somewhere else uh, but because it's quote unquote docker native which for some people is is really really important uh it's it's certainly you know it, it will have its its market share and 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 uh, growing so the question with with docker things is always and that's the same for networking and for you know storage and whatnot uh as maybe people have heard that docker has this idea of batteries included but you, you can change them um the question is uh are, are the batteries the included batteries good enough or not right so you can you know exchange the scheduler uh with whatever messes or whatever but um so we we from from the, our point of view from messes point of view we just uh you know Fewer the the other way around, right? For us, we, we we're trying to be an operating system, and we don't really care if you're running Marathon or Kubernetes or Docker Swarm on top of of the DCOS. That's the idea. So from our mm. perspective, uh, whatever whatever you like, uh, but but certainly on that level, like you know, from Kubernetes to Docker Swarm and ECS and 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 so on perspective, there there is certainly some some competition going on there, and I would mm. assume there there's it's not a, a winner take it all market, right? Everyone will have have uh, their their niche and their their uh, user and fan base. Yeah, interesting. So the Mesos project was actually I, I didn't know this before reading the Mesos paper, but the Mesos project was the genesis for Apache Spark. Um, yes, yes. Exactly. What, what was what was the experiment that the Mesos creators wanted to run when they built Spark? Well, they they essentially when I earlier said there we don't have a proof uh, that would actually be the closest to a proof. They wanted to show off how easy it is to build something new, some new kind of you know uh, distributed processing system with or on top of Mesos, and they did that with with Spark uh, in in a very very short time and and you know a few lines of codes uh, i can't remember the, the number of, of lines of codes but way way less than if you would have you know built that from scratch and um and yeah that's that's the general idea and then you know later on uh people would would uh, do their own things so so uh, uh we we you know now have spark and the whole uh, ecosystem around spark uh, with the databrick folks and and um yeah ben ben being uh, at mesosphere one of the co-founders and architects of of uh, of mesos that's uh, and the the amount of technology that's come out of the berkeley amp lab is it's pretty pretty astounding. Like yes. Spark, Mesos, 
Uh, we're doing a show on Tachyon in the near oh, yeah. future. Yeah. What yeah. What do you think led to this degree of innovation? I mean, you, I'm sure you've interacted some with Ben and maybe these right, other right. guys. What, right. what What led to this? So I think they their long term view, right? So the the um, no matter if you look at, at Ample App at, at itself, the organization, or uh, what they call the the badass stack, right? The Berkeley whatever uh, data analytics stack, whatever <laughs> badass stack. Uh, you know this vision of you know we're not doing one little thing here. We have a I don't know ten years vision and ten years founding, uh, to be honest. And and you know that attracts um, certainly people, uh, good people. And then it certainly doesn't you know it's. It, it certainly helps that that you're close to the big guys like you know Google and Facebook and, and whatnot. That that certainly and there was mm. also at that time around Omega, uh, two thousand nine or whatever uh, Omega Mesos. That that certainly you know these these teams um, they they had quite a, a an exchange of, of ideas and discussions and they mutually um, you know benefited from that from these discussions. Yeah, it also seems like Ben and Matei at least mm. had had a lot of industry experience uh, when they developed these absolutely yeah these yeah, things yeah yeah they they were not their their typical or your your typical academics and I I guess I can say that I was twelve years in academia so I I think I <laughs> you were shell shocked. <laughs> no, um, no, no further comment on that. But no yeah. further comment. Yeah, very. So very we have. We we have a few listener questions from the Slack channel. I um I posted on the Slack channel this morning uh, that I was going to be interviewing you and um, asked yeah. if there were any uh, listeners who were interested um, in questions. There, I did get a few questions. And if anybody's listening and they want to join the Slack channel, by the way, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com and sign up. So um, one of our listeners, George Adams, asks. To what extent does Mesosphere DCOS rely on Cassandra to ensure data isn't lost when a machine on AWS goes down? So the question, if I understand it correctly, is if the DCOS relies on Cassandra. Yes. Does it rely on Cassandra? No, no. no. So you can use Cassandra as one of the services, um, and uh, there is something what, what we call the infinity stack. Uh, it's kind of like big data IoT stack that uses uh, that you know heavily uses and has it as its center uh, Cassandra. But there is no hard dependency on Cassandra for the DCOS as such. Mm. So uh, George also asks uh, if a Jenkins instance goes down. How are its configurations migrated? What if I have things that require a static IP address for whitelisting? Right. So that's an excellent question. And, and there are unfortunately many, many, you know, possible answers because it very much depends on how you're using it. So we have uh, one case where you, a large organization that has some 4,000 developers essentially has one Jenkins per developer, Right. Uh, it also depends on how you set things up. If you have, for example, um, uh, one IP per container, which is, uh, I think, since uh, kernel version 3.19 or, or whatever uh, supported, uh, then you can do other things than if you know you need to somehow juggle around with your ports and need to uh, make sure that you don't have any conflicts there if you're using Docker Bridge mode. So, you know, 
uh, it really depends. There is unfortunately no no generic uh, good good answer there. It very much depends on your environment. But I'm more than than happy to you know if, if someone reaches out to me via whatever Twitter or, or on Slack or mail or whatever, I say okay, this is my environment. This is what I want to do. To say okay, here here are the two options that work probably work best for your case. But unfortunately, I, with you know the data or the, the description sure. I have here, I, I cannot give a, a concrete <laughs> solution for this because it's it's underspecified. I, I don't know. Right. About so the, the this department. isn't this isn't exactly car talk for uh, <laughs> for for the data center operating system. Right, right. Um, so uh, another another power listener uh, name node asks, uh, what do you think about one ops from Walmart Labs? I don't know if you've heard of this product. Yes, yes. Um, as far as I remember, of course, I could Google now, but as far as I remember, that was something uh, OpenStack related. Let's see. I think was, I have it open right I, here. It's. I, uh, I, I, I'm not not entirely sure, Walmart. but I believe it was OpenStack related. And um, that, as far as I remember, um, and so the question is. To me, to a certain extent, um, what's the motivation of uh, of Walmart to to do that? Uh, you know, Walmart is uh, Walmart is a, is a retailer, and AWS is a retailer, and there might have been reasons to do that. I I, mm-hmm. I, I welcome any kind and every kind of open sourcing, no doubt. I don't know the motivation for that specific one but i as a, i can't remember the details but as far as i remember i, th- I think it's something to do with openstack hmm. uh, some some openstack um you know uh, dependency or whatever I, I i cannot for the life of it i cannot uh, remember what what the, the you know eh, don't worry about it that's a super specific question <laughs> um so name node, we need more general questions in the future. Uh, oh, it says, it says, yeah, yeah. One of supports public cloud stories like AWS on OpenStack to code. Yeah, yeah. So it is an OpenStack. Okay. Is the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need to do a show on OpenStack. I haven't done a show on that yet. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. So, okay. You know, let's start to close off. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about Mesosphere. What kinds of products does Mesosphere make? So... Mesosphere, it's, it, it, as such, really only has one product, and that's the DCOS, the Data Center Operating System, which is a, a distributed operating system. Uh, people might remember if they are longer around uh, Plan 9 from, from Bell Labs. So it's really a, a you know this kind of distributed operating system. And it uses it, it happens to use Apache Mesos as its kernel. And, uh, you know, we're trying to uh, productize the, the experience that our co-founders have uh, running Mesos and, and, and several Mesos frameworks or services at scale mm. in companies like Twitter and Airbnb and so on, um, mm. you know, and and make it very very simple and and easy for people to um, you know launch their Spark and Elasticsearch and Kubernetes and whatnot cluster. And it's really a beautiful thing. I mean, I've, I've spent uh, you know in my previous life a lot of time uh, setting up this and that database and this and that framework and so on. And now it's kind of like it's a one-liner, right? It's DCOS package install uh, Kubernetes or Spark or Cassandra, and then I wait for a couple of minutes and everything is there. And you know that's the beauty of it. So one thing I think about with this stuff is like. Uh, and I, t- I kind of alluded to this earlier with the potential of the big companies being a leading indicator for smaller companies. But, um, you know, when we think about 
really young companies these days, we think about their compute stack as generally being uh, not really similar to the compute stack of a giant company like Twitter that has, you know, needs for all of this compute power. Um, but it seems like if that were more accessible, people might take advantage of it more aggressively. Is that is that one of the big visions for, for Mesosphere, like making this stuff more accessible, more usable, more one-clicky so that people will take advantage of it? Yeah, I, I guess you're spot on. I, I guess that's exactly what you know many startups are after it's the flexibility you need you you need to be able to you know should your application or whatever you're doing there be an overnight success that you are immediately you know be able to serve so and so many uh, customers mm-hmm. or users mm-hmm. and and that flexibility um Together with, you know, you, you want to make sure that the things you're doing there are somewhat sustainable. I'm not saying that you, you know, you're not planning for a code base being around for 10 years, but you don't want to make things that fall apart after three weeks, right? You probably, you know, want to benefit from something you write and, and you know, benefit from it more than a week or two. Um, so this flexibility with, with you know, it, it has... And, and, and a part of it, one aspect might be portability. That's why, you know, things like, you know, um, Mesos or, or Kubernetes are so powerful because they don't lock you in to one proprietary interface that you can only have in one specific cloud. But it's yeah. up to you to decide, you know, you might start due to whatever reasons, uh, let's say in AWS. And at some point in time, you might say, eh, I really want to move to <sighs> some on-prem deployment or the other way around. And you can do that with, you know, Mesos Marathon, with Kubernetes, uh, and any other open source project, while with proprietary standards and APIs and interfaces, you can't. You're locked in. And but and, and you want to be fl- that flexible, right? You want to have that flexibility, I suppose. That's great. Well, that seems like a good place to stop. Michael Hausenbloss, thanks for coming out of Software Engineering Daily. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs>